Dear congregation, let us turn in our Bibles to the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel chapter 1. Our text will come from the first two verses primarily. It's good to be able to set this also in the context of the first chapter and really the whole book of Daniel as we'll look to introduce this book uh, to us in this morning. Let us hear God's Word, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed to them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names and gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But, David, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearances be examined before you, and the appearances of the young men who eat of the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel 
and understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king has said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word and add his blessing to the exposition of it as well. Dear congregation of our Lord, as we look at the book of Daniel, we recognize that the book of Daniel is named after its author and you might even say its main human character. And we think of how names have significance, in, especially in the Old Testament. And one might expect that Daniel's name would mean, I am judge, since Daniel was handpicked by by really the government in, in Babylon, to be a, of one who would provide leadership and governmental service in, in the land of Babylon. And yet, his name does not mean, I am judge, but rather, God is judge. And so, although Daniel is the main human character in the book of Daniel, we must always remember as we begin to look at this book that God himself is the main character of the book of Daniel. As Daniel becomes God's prophetic mouthpiece both to the Gentiles and the Jewish world to declare unto them and to us today God's present and eternal purposes as he intervenes even uh, within the affairs of men and the kingdoms of this world. And so when we look at the purpose of the book of Daniel and we ask ourselves why would we even look at such a book in, in our day, especially when we look at how it's been so misused throughout even Christianity in many ways. Let me just give you a couple examples. First, we find those who would really obsess over the last six chapters of the book of Daniel with all of the visions about the future. And they treat it kind of like a big puzzle and, and trying to nail down the time when Jesus will return to this earth and set up his kingdom here and, and they have lots of fanciful ideas about it and try to, try to connect that with all of Scripture. Others react to the book of Daniel by maybe even just saying, you know what, that's been so many years ago all of those strange visions and so on. You know what? I, I'm just not going to go there. I don't understand half of it anyway. Well, that's not how we ought to look at any part of God's Word either. And then there are others, maybe, maybe some of us are also guilty of the same thing. We love the first half of the book of Daniel, but the second half, the visions, 
Pastor, just please preach through the first half of the book because those stories, they'll be great and they'll be great for our children and everything else. And certainly, it's wonderful that our children would know about the stories of the fiery furnace and the lion's den and the finger that wrote on the wall and how Daniel here even in chapter 1 and his friends are, are able to stand up in the government and, and, and to be able to change their diet to fit what they believe God calls them to. And so we might think that by just looking at the stories and the wonderful stories that Daniel is teaching us how to live a bold and courageous life. If we would just do what God wants us to do and we would decide to be an army of Daniels who knew what God would do in this world today. If only we would have more Daniels. Well, this isn't a book about a man named Daniel who triumphs over, over all, even despite the odds being stacked against him. This book is about God. This book is about who the God of Daniel is and how he reveals himself as the one who sits on the throne ordering all things and showing how great he is. Just just think about this text from Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. The people that know their God shall be strong and shall do great deeds. And so it begins with the God of Daniel who makes them strong and equips them. The message for our present day is very clear. God is king. God is judge. God is in control. Despite the challenging circumstances that we might live in even in our day, the very fact that God is on His throne teaches us to live as His servants even in the most difficult of circumstances. And so as we introduce the book of Daniel this morning, with the name, God is my judge. We recognize that God is the one who has history in his hands, first of all. It's God's story. It's God's history. Secondly, we'll look at how God is sovereign over all of his history and reigns sovereignly yesterday, today, and forever. And thirdly, we'll see how that applies to God's servants. First of all, as we introduce Daniel, we introduce it as God's story, God's history. Daniel 1, verses 1 through 2, we begin with the history. The history book is open. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried unto the land of Shinar, the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. The history books are open, not only to Daniel 1, but to first, uh, sorry, 2 Kings 24 and 25, where we find near the end of the 17th century and the beginning of the 6th century B.C. before Christ, saw the 
the Babylonian Empire began to, to ascend in power and, and, and to expand throughout this earth. Babylon is the central city in this kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom. And Jerusalem is of obviously the central city in, in the land of Judah. And these two are set in opposition to one another. And, and Jerusalem is defeated. And this happens in about three stages. And here in Daniel 1, we find Jehoiakim was king. And so this must be that first stage of the victories. So it's probably around 605 B.C. The last stage was obviously 587 when they all went into exile and Jerusalem is completely destroyed. But even here in the initial stages of, of Jerusalem being besieged and ransacked, the news would have made the high headlines of that day. There's apparent victory for Babylon. There's victory given to Babylon's gods. And the god of the people of Jerusalem are defeated. That's what it's all about. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar, even as he besieges Jerusalem, he carries away the articles of the house of God and brings them into the house of his God. That's what's newsworthy. What's newsworthy here is that Nebuchadnezzar, an extraordinary, Extremely arrogant man sees even himself as a god and, and to prove his superiority and the superiority of his gods, he would take these articles from Jerusalem and place them in the house of his god. And of course, the Jews would boast in their god, Jehovah, who, who really is all-powerful, and here now, Nebuchadnezzar appears to have victory over Jehovah God. Nebuchadnezzar is sovereign. The heathen gods have triumphed. And so you can understand the great sorrow, the great sorrow that took place upon this siege. As they're led captives back or to Babylon, as they're led kept in captivity to Babylon, the Babylonians would torment their captors and mock them and saying, play us some of those songs from Zion. Even maybe Psalm 20. I will trust, though my counselors say, I'll flee as a bird to your mountain away. The wicked are strong and the righteous are weak. Foundations are shaken, yet God will I seek. Certainly the foundations are shaken. But what about the next verse? The Lord in His temple shall ever abide. His throne is eternal. Whatever be time. How can you sing such a song? Jerusalem is ransacked. The temple is ransacked. The articles are going to the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. And their hearts would faint. And as we find in Psalm 137, they would sit by the rivers and weep. Weep for the thought of Jerusalem, the city of their God, and their hearts would faint. And they couldn't sing the songs of Zion. 
Yet we need to remember there's more in the history books. We need to see all of the history books opened. As all history books are opened in Genesis chapter 3, we find this age-old conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Jesus, of God. And that age-old conflict comes to its foreground even here in Daniel. And yet we need to remember that promise. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And certainly there's enmity here between the seed of Satan and his followers and the seed of the, the woman who would, the Christ would come out of, the one who would, who would come to bruise the head of Satan, crush it, even as he nips at his heels. You see, that whole tension finds its climax in the book of Revelation. As we find there in Revelation 12, the dragon standing before the woman who's ready to give birth to devour, to devour her child as soon as it's born. That war is real. Because they wanted to devour him because they knew that this child would be raised up to rule the nations with a rod of iron as he was caught up to God in his throne. We see this tension play out throughout history. The tension of kingdoms clashing, cities clashing. The city in the Old Testament representing the church of God is Jerusalem, and, and the city of this world is represented as Babylon, and you can find that in the Old Testament. You can find that in the book of Revelation. There's a conflict going on. Augustine, St. Augustine, wrote a book called The City of God. And in it, he, he, he really writes about how the city of God is God's society, and the other city is the city of this world. And he describes them as this. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self and a contempt of God, and the heavenly city by a love of God even to the contempt of self. There's two cities. There's, there's two cities even sometimes playing us in our own hearts, in our own lives, much less in the kingdoms of this world. John Bunyan also recognized that heart struggle with that, right? Especially as he looks at the city of destruction and, and then on the other hand the city of Vanity Fair and, and, and all these two cities were in opposition to Christians advance to the heavenly city, the Jerusalem. There's a warfare going on even in Christians' life. You can even look to secular literature such as Charles Dickinson who, who writes a book of the tale of two cities. And he compares a, a, a nation suffering under bloodthirsty tyranny, uh, betrayal and death, and, and a nation in which there's a family full of love and light and hope. These two cities and, and the people of these cities are woven throughout these books and, and you can see both sides as you go through it. This is some, something similar to what's happening in the book of Daniel. 
The book of Daniel reflects such at times the church of the living God in a hostile world against His church. What else could we expect in a world where our Lord Jesus Christ has said, in this world you will have tribulation. And yet, even in this tribulation, in this dark circumstances, we need to recognize that God has given them to us. And we need to react as the people of God reacted even throughout the book of Daniel in good times and bad times. You see, that's what the book of Daniel is teaching us. How to live in a hostile world under the rule of God because he has all history in his hands. And even though you look at the beginning verses of Daniel 1 and you might come to the conclusion that Babylon has finally overcome the city of God, this has happened time and time again. But this might have been a great surprise to many people in those days because isn't this the God who brought out Israel out of Egypt? Isn't this the God who gave them so many victories through the wilderness into the land, into that promised land, who gave them blessing upon blessing under the reign of King David? As as he prospers greatly through this world as in the kingdom of God is greatly extended as Jerusalem becomes its center point, even, yes, it has its ups and downs through the history, but, but think about how not even so long ago in history God had given victory for Hezekiah also in Jerusalem as, as in a moment he strikes down 120,000 enemy soldiers with just, just the, really the, the finger of God doing it. Now there's no David. Now there's no Hezekiah. They have a puppet king, Jehoiakim. Who's going to be the one who leads Israel, Judah? We have to recognize something here. It's not necessarily as if Babylon are the bad guys and Jerusalem are the good guys. Jerusalem has failed miserably. They've left God. They have forsaken God. They have forsaken the God who had given them all of these victories. And now God, in his own city, gives them over to Babylon. Who would have thought God's city would fall like this? Well, Maybe not so many years ago, who would have thought? Nations such as the U.S. or Canada would fall and fail miserably. And now we need to recognize that these things are going on, this war is going on right here in a Western world, and whether it's the U.S. or Canada or wherever it is, we need to recognize that, we, but we need to recognize it's not a physical war. It's a, it's a war of worldviews, very similar to Nebuchadnezzar and 
Jerusalem. In the Western world, both both in Canada and the U.S., it began with a a Judeo-Christian worldview. And we need to recognize that those times are gone and that we live in a very multicultural society. And we can point to the countless gods of materialism and secular ideas, heathen and cultish temples growing and even prospering, and yet the church of the Lord Jesus Christ seems to be crumbling and some Somewhere, sometimes you look and you think the foundations are eroding. Where many no longer preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and and to proclaim the truths of God's Word. And we also have to confess it's not necessarily the bad guys against the good guys. Maybe we have to say, where have all the good guys gone? When we see churches supporting such ideas like there's so many roads to God. There's so many ways to get to God. There's so many so many things that we have to consider about this faith group or that faith group. All these roads, they might speak a different language, but they all get to God. It's false. The false gospel of prosperity. The false gospel of self-worth and self-help and self-motivation. All false gospels. You think of the worldviews that are completely contrast to who God is, whether you're discussing creation versus evolution. You see in this world around us today a moral decay where good is called evil and evil is called good. We see that in Bill C. 6 of conversion therapy where sexual freedom and sexual expression is actually celebrated. And if you disagree with it being celebrated then you stand and, and you take a stand on God's Word, then you might not even get a job or, or you might not be able to do business at certain institutions or, or potentially even your church or your ministry might even be criminalized through this bill. Basically, our Supreme Court is saying that sexual liberty and religious liberty are clashing. The two kingdoms are clashing. And as they clash, they say sexual liberty must come first. All of the irrationality that exists in our world, even in our culture today, where we, on one hand, say, we need to preserve life. We need to value life. And COVID is a, is a real virus, and it is real, and it's, it's, it, it can be deadly. Yes, it can. And yet, at the same time, we, 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 we forget about making any kind of abortion laws to protect children even to the very moment that they're born. Or we promote euthanasia bills such as C7 where where now doctors have to give the opportunity and even nurses and working in palliative care have to give the opportunity to provide euthanasia. It's irrational. Totally irrational. As we live in this irrational 
culture-clashing, kingdom-clashing society, what would we expect from our children in such circumstances? Would you expect your children to, to be able to stand up and profess Christ and profess God in the midst of, of a school system or a work environment that is anti-God? Would we expect our children to dress according to the world, uh, according to the Word of God? Would we expect them to listen to things that are edifying and scriptural? Would we expect them to, to watch things that are God-glorifying? Would we expect them to spend the Lord's Day desiring to worship the Lord our God? Do they even know the language anymore of Zion? That's the question that we're all confronted with as we live in this world today. And that's what makes looking at Daniel so important. God is in control of this history. He's in control of all the circumstances. And we need to acknowledge that God is on His throne and He is in control. And He is the same yesterday. He's the same today. And He will be the same forever. As we introduce Daniel, we need to stand in our second point as we see on God's sovereignty. Notice what, what our text says. There's just a little phrase that most everyone who is triumphing in Babylon as they receive the articles of the temple and they bring them to the shrine of their God and as they're, they're placing them there and ridiculing the God of Israel, Judah, they, they don't hear these words in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with those articles. The Lord gave. The Lord was in control of this. Actually, it was the sovereignty of our God in giving Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God is in control of absolutely everything. Jesus says not even one hair of our head falls to the ground without God knowing about it. Not one of them. And God is also in absolute control of this situation and He gives Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Nebuchadnezzar didn't come and conquer Jehoiakim. By his own strength and his own intuition, it was God who gave him into his hand. But why? What kind of plan would God have in this? Well, actually, what do we see? We see God's faithfulness in his sovereignty here, don't we? we take this whole understanding of who God is, then we need to remember that God is faithful in His sovereignty. And that means God's promises are real. But you say, well, pastor, didn't God promise so many blessings for Israel and that the seed would come out of the children of Israel and, and provide redemption? Yes, those are God's promises. But don't forget the curses are also part of His promises. Not only the blessings, but also the curses. I don't have time to go into it in, in depth, but Leviticus 26 
And Deuteronomy 28 explained this so pointedly that there are blessings and there are cursings with the promises of God. And for example, in Leviticus 26, that if they keep the words of His covenant, they keep the law of God, and they, and they seek to live to the glory of God, they will have His favor and blessing. And yet, if you look at verses 14 through 39 of Leviticus 26, if they abandon God, they violate His covenant, they will experience His wrath and His displeasure. He even goes on to show how He will give them over to their enemies and nations will come and leave them waste and they will go away into exile. It's all spoken of in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. But we also know only a generation or two ago that King Hezekiah had also received people coming from Babylon. And as, he came, as they came, they gave him gifts. And so Hezekiah showed them everything that was in the storehouses of God and all the treasures that he had. You can find that in 2 Kings 20. And Isaiah prophesies against him that the Lord was upset with what he had done. And that because of this, there's going to be political ramifications. All of their allegiance with Babylon will indeed lead them one day into exile. Politics had replaced their trust in the Lord. That was the problem. And so God is going to lead them to exile for it. And for so many other sins. The sins of Manasseh and the list could go on. But what's happening here is also something that we need to also consider in our day. As we too think about and might be tempted to place our hope and our expectations on political alliances rather than wholeheartedly trusting in the Lord. Yes, politics has its place. But Ultimately, in it all, even as we engage in politics, we need to have a wholehearted trust in God. A wholehearted trust in God. And Daniel will teach us that. And God is then not only faithful in bringing them to exile, but He's also faithful in bringing His servants along with them into exile. We'll see that more in our third point, but I I want to elaborate a little more on what this really means to us. Someone might say and argue, I understand that God must judge, but why would He give them over to such a wicked people and to punish His own people? Well, What kind of God do we want to serve? Do we want to serve a kind of God that looks over sin and just winks at sin and and doesn't fulfill His promises and cursing? Because if you want to serve such a God, how could you ever expect such a God to also be faithful to His blessings? You see, 
God has promised that salvation will come through judgment. And really, that's what this is, this is showing us, isn't it? That indeed, salvation does come through judgment in order for all of the blessings, the promises of grace and the goodness and the mercy and the salvation of God to be given and distributed to all His people. He has to bring into judgment in order to show his mercy because he's also sovereign in his mercy. Well, he said, Pastor, how is he sovereign in his mercy here? I don't see anything merciful. His people are suffering. Can I ask you this? Can you comprehend? Can you comprehend how God would allow his name, his temple, his place among this people of this world in Jerusalem, could you imagine how God would allow himself to suffer such great shame as being taken to the idol gods of the Babylonians and those gods to smear his name? They come to Babylon and they sing praises not to God but they sing praises to their gods even Murdoch from whom all blessings flow unbelievable our God is willing to suffer shame along with his people. That's the pattern you find throughout the scripture, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ comes into this world, who one who's created it, to suffer shame, humiliation. And we call it weakness. But you see, the weakness of God will prove to be stronger than the strength of men. The very foolishness of God will prove to be wiser than the wisdom of Babylon. God is sovereign over all things, and that gives us great encouragement in the midst of difficult circumstances. And God is even sovereign over giving his servants, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, to be his light in Babylon. I just want to spend a couple moments as we close to think about God's servants, how God has raised them up here in Babylon. He has brought Daniel, whose name means God is my judge. He has brought Hananiah, whose name means God is gracious. He has brought Azariah, whose name means God has helped. He has brought Mishael, who is what our God is. But you notice what happens? In verses 6 and 7, you notice the chief eunuchs gave them new names because they could not be named for the God of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They had to have names changed fit the names of the God 
of the Babylonians. We'll look at that more next week. But what do we recognize here? Is that God is blessing them. God is giving them wisdom. God is giving them ability to interpret dreams. God is giving them strength. God is giving them courage and faith. That's why it's celebrated in the New Testament that these are those who stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire. But this courage and faith, it just didn't develop overnight. It wasn't just, just something that happened in their life. God was bringing them through this point in history, through the difficult circumstances, the darkest of circumstances, the most adverse circumstances, in order to prepare them as young disciples to stand, to stand in the strength of the Lord. You see, then it's not about Daniel or Hananiah or Mishael or Azariah, or maybe how oh, you would know it better, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it's about God. It's about the God of His servants. And even though the world is, lives in opposition to the glory of their God, the people of God, their strength is in Him. even though they aren't the most visible people in this world, but they are substantial people. And the question that comes to you and to me as I close is are you with the people of Daniel? Are you connected to his God? Are you with the people that have brand, been branded with his special brand? God is my judge. God is the one who's on the throne. God is the one who strengthens his servants. You see, each one of us have been born into a secular city. A secular city. A secular kingdom. The kingdom of darkness. But the kingdom of God comes through that new birth, being brought into His kingdom through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that kingdom, its doors are wide open for us this morning. You see the, you see the chaos, the confusion, and the darkness of this world. But God stands here in the book of Daniel and He opens the doors of His kingdom and He says it's wide open for all who come. Let them come. You see, it was by faith that Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, followed the promises of God as a foreigner and going to a foreign country. And there, God gave him the richness and the blessing of his promise. He didn't seek a city that had foundations in this world. He sought a city whose foundations were in God. A city of God.
and the God of the city. Are you part of that city? Is he your God? Can you say, maybe my name isn't Daniel, but my spiritual name is God, is my judge, my king, my Lord, my life, my all, because he is my Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we crack open the book of Daniel, we see your history. We see your sovereignty. And we see your servants. And we ask, O Lord, that today we would bend the knee to King Jesus to know all things are in your hands. All power and dominion, both in heaven and upon earth, are in your hand. The very heart of the kings are in your hands. Every detail of this world is in your hands. O Lord, that we would bend the knee and confess and worship and receive you by faith to be welcomed into the open doors of your kingdom and to know indeed that in your kingdom you equip your servants to be courageous be servants who are faithful. O Lord, instruct us. May we see the God of Daniel, but may we also serve the God of Daniel. Day by day, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.